Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Eva Yazari, to our show today. Eva is a seasoned investor, entrepreneur, author, and CEO of Beyond Capital, an early stage impact investment fund that is dedicated to improving lives globally. Eva started her career going up the ranks in Wall Street and working alongside top hedge fund managers in New York. Although she was thriving in her position and really enjoyed investing, Eva felt like she wasn't making a big impact in her life and was yearning to find meaning and purpose. This led her down the world of impact investing and becoming more aware of living both personally and professionally in a way that aligns with her values. In this wide-ranging interview, we'll talk to Eva about steps we can all take to find more meaning in our lives, what impact investing is, and how you can incorporate it in your day-to-day life, why it's important to have an abundance versus scarcity mindset, and how we can all get over our own perfectionism. Welcome to the show, Eva. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Yasmin, for having me. Yes. And big shout out to our mutual fund, Karen, for connecting us recently. And you know, you've become a quick, good friend of mine. And I love everything that you stand for. And there's a lot of key things that we resonated with in terms of our previous careers in Wall Street and what you're up to today. So I'm really excited for our community to learn more about you and your journey today. So thank you again for taking the time. So on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. And I know you grew up in New York with very artsy parents who are quite creative. I'd love to hear some of the core themes you think they taught you growing up and how you think that upbringing has influenced the women you are today. I love that question. That's a fun question to answer because my upbringing in New York City was centered around the art world. So my parents are working and living artists and they are also art teachers. And so when I was a child, I was I say dragged around to Chelsea and Soho and all of the galleries. And I didn't like it at the time. There were never any other children there. And that was the number one top question that I would ask, are there going to be other kids? And the answer was always no. But I think what it allowed for me to have was an appreciation for visual arts and almost like a training around having creativity as a daily part of my life. I think we often bifurcate arts as for, you know, only specific types of people that have budgets to be collectors. When for me, that was not necessarily the case because my parents were the artists and their friends were artists and they would trade art for specific things or they would trade art with each other. So we had a lot of art in our home and um, we were also seeing a lot of art very, very regularly. And it felt really nice. But if I were to think about how that element of creativity adds up to who I am today, I think as an investor, because ultimately that's what I am, I'm a venture investor. I just happen to think about more than financial return in my investments. I need to be creative to be able to do that in order to spur the growth of social and environmental return alongside with financial return. There is a necessity for innovation, which is essentially just creativity. But I'm happy to unpack this, but I actually didn't honor my creativity initially when I started out being an emerging markets venture capitalist with a focus on impact that 12 years ago, I centered my skills more around my Wall Street background and was very kind of intellectual about it. 
And then when I met our mutual friend, Coach Karen Eldad, she really helped me kind of push outside of those boundaries and think about venture in a different way. And that's been a big part of who I am now and today. And one of the main reasons I wrote a book recently. But really, I would say that creativity was kind of the main thread in my upbringing. And there are a couple others that are quite relevant, but I'll kind of leave it at that because I think that sums up a lot. Yeah. And we'll definitely unpack all of that. And I think that's an important piece to even talk about because it's something that even growing up for me, I was incredibly creative and similar to you kind of forgot about that world, fell into the world of Wall Street and really lost that imagination and curiosity for life and creativity that you have a child. And it's something that I'm beginning to relearn the past few years. So I'm excited to kind of unpack in a little bit later in this interview more on that topic. But another thing I also want to bring up about your upbringing, you talk a lot about the deep inspiration you also got from your grandfather, which I feel like has provided you a big influence on who you are today. So I'd love to hear what he was up to. And as a child, you know how you think that also impacted you. For sure. So I grew up hearing stories from my grandfather and my father about living in Africa. My grandfather was widowed after having had five children, and he remarried not long after his first wife passed away, who was the mother of my father. And he married a really spunky woman who I think valued adventure, but also had very strong values of her own. And my grandfather was a medical doctor in the Midwest of the US. So he went to medical school in Oklahoma and lived in Michigan at the time. And when he remarried, I think the combination of his skill, being a medical doctor, and my adopted grandmother, my new grandmother's kind of love for life and desire to have adventure took them to Africa. So they moved to Tanzania in the 50s, in 1959. They took, I'll never forget the story of getting on a steamship in New York City and taking that ship down to Cape Town and then you know, driving an airstream from Cape Town to a very remote part of the southwestern part of Tanzania. And they started a health clinic. And my grandfather was the main doctor in that clinic. And he would see patients from all the surrounding rural areas, malaria, birthing babies. And he delivered a young child whose mother then passed away because mortality rates, mm. postpartum hemorrhage, and then maternal mortality rates post-birth are extremely high in Africa and in India where I invest. And that woman became my aunt and she lives in Oakland, wow. California. And she was one of two children that they tried to bring back to the US. The other one was a little bit more complicated, but she became a part of our family. And so... Hearing about what it was like to live in Africa and the family being there really changed the way that I looked at the world. It seemed normal to me to kind of look outside of the US. It seemed normal to find opportunity in other places that seemed so far away or maybe even scary or lacking in opportunity. Because I think the messaging we largely get in the US is that, and in Europe too, is that Africa is poor and that's like mm. period full stop when there's a lot more to the opportunity in the markets in Africa and India, where we centered our investment around at Beyond Capital. So that definitely added up to me leaving Wall Street amid the financial crisis and thinking about where to become an investor and lead an opportunity. And that opportunity turned out to be in Africa and India. And I think it was very much so in part due to my upbringing. But 
again, the same theme, you know, in my career, I didn't realize it until about five years into my work that that was a true driving force of meaning and purpose for me because I wasn't seeking meaning and purpose in my work at that point. And so once I did, I realized that creativity, using your skills for good and social justice, which was a pretty core theme in my upbringing through my other side of my family and through my parents' just kind of daily dinner table conversations with me, all three of those, I would call them core attributes, really comprise what I'm doing right now. Absolutely. And what lights me up is to see people who are living and breathing a life that is core to their values. So I love to kind of hear your upbringing and what those attributes are, because I think you're a great example of someone who's living, you know, work, both their personal and professional life in that manner. And I think it's great to hear. So taking it back a little bit, you know, I know you studied math in college, you interned in investment banking. And you went straight to Wall Street after graduating, which I know you actually enjoyed. So I'd love to just hear more about your experience there. I loved working on Wall Street. I loved the deals. I loved the investment process. I really loved just everything about investing. But that's because I wake up every single day wanting to be an investor. And I actually have said recently, as we first closed our second fund, that I think I'm meant to be a fund manager which I'm not sure many people would say, (laughs) Um, particularly many women. But I think a lot of women will start to become more fund managers. So for me, the... I think the networking aspect combined with getting to know people, but people implementing ideas and investment strategies was really like, if I were to distill it down, what I loved about working on Wall Street. There were some challenges though, because my core attributes are justice and innovation and leadership. And when I looked around me, I didn't see models of what I was really looking for in those areas, whether it was the subprime mortgage trade known as the big short that, you know, I got to observe basically start to finish and managers that made a lot of money on the backs of the failure and default of mortgages of innocent people. Or it was that pretty much the industry was white and male. And that seemed normal at the time. But now we know what that has resulted in, which is statistics of like less than 2% and 5%, depending on what industries of capital flowing to women and people of color and having all the control of our financial system in the hands of one particular group. And so I really was looking for a way to kind of look beyond those paradigms. And that's where I probably subconsciously came to think about how to use my skills because I knew that I had a skill and a passion Mm -hmm. for due diligence. And until this day, my parents would say, what is due diligence? You know, like, what is that? And essentially, it's just getting to know where you're investing and asking a very extensive set of questions. But I combine that passion with then, you know, looking beyond and finding opportunity to have an impact on what I would call low-income individuals, but globally, probably very, very low-income individuals living on less than $15 a day that Mm -hmm. have a budget for healthcare energy access, financial inclusion and tools and agriculture tools and waste and sanitation, but it's a small budget. So there needs to be innovation and creativity around those business models. So I actually am really grateful to having worked on Wall Street and that primarily in the fund of hedge fund space, I got to sit in the room and ask direct questions to some of the brightest investors, but then I had to put my own spin on that in order to make it for me. 
Absolutely. And you know, one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview was you left the world of Wall Street in 2008, 2009, when the economy clearly wasn't in a great place back then, but also how it really was a first time you wanted to think more about impact and creating joy and fulfillment. There are so many people listening on this podcast who are in that situation. You know, I've been in that situation for probably most of my career. Do you remember the first few steps you took to really gain that perspective on what brings you joy or how to marry your skill sets with clearly what you're up to today that our listeners can take away and try to implement in their lives now? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it centered around my values around justice because I basically had two pieces. I had the investment skill set, I had the creativity aspect and the thinking beyond just the existing system of Wall Street, which was very US centric, again, particular type of person making decisions. And justice was the glue because when I would see something that I was unjust, I would kind of act against that or want to move away from that. And I grew up in a really particular environment with a a family member who was a member of the Democratic Party for 26 years. And I'm also an only child. So I was treated as an adult. And I was at the dinner table and talking about NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and all sorts of kind of very intricate political happenings and events. And so because I had that upbringing, I think I knew that justice was a core attribute of mine. I also grew up in urban New York City and at one point decided to go to the local public school. And there I just was very clear to me the privilege that I had as a white female, a white person whose parents were middle-class vis-a-vis the other students in that environment. And so it just really added up to, to something that I was very aware of. But I actually have had to discover some of my other values. And I believe that I'm what would be called a conscious investor. So I'm thinking about using all my resources to have an impact and to align with my values. And in that process, I've had to think about how to prioritize values. Because if I think about justice, I can focus on female founders. I can focus on managers of color or founders of color as well. Or I can think about the climate emergency, which is something that I probably think about less from the justice lens, but more as an area where I think it's imperative. We have to act on that in order for my kids to have a life that is dignified and healthy in the future either mentally or physically healthy. And so I did have to go into a deeper dive exploration. And some of that was just thinking about what resonates with me, maybe where I was giving money, my philanthropy as I kind of grew up as a professional, but also where I thought the greatest need was. And I also care about areas like education and responsible consumption and production. But for me, it's really, I've had to distill it down and take some time to reflect on the focus on racial and gender equity systemically, as well as the climate emergency. And those are kind of the key areas that I'm very centered around. That being said, they're quite broad areas and there's a lot to focus on. So I could fund you know, a female fund manager or give to a climate-oriented NGO. There are many ways to express that or even ban plastic in my house, which is essentially what I did two, three years ago. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think the main theme about what you're mentioning is just really getting clear on what your personal values are as a person. And, you know, sometimes that comes up on what is bothering you, right? Like you wanted justice in certain situations you were in or deals that you saw. And for me, I realized I was always talking about trying to get women to feel more empowered and confident in their lives. You know, even before the podcast, I was that friend that would get frustrated if I saw some type of inequality amongst women, you know, whether it was in my finance world or tech world. So that ended up being a key theme in my life that now I'm really focused on. So I think your explanation on how you got to your values is really helpful. And one thing you mentioned in another interview that I thought was fascinating was when you were working in Wall Street, it's very much a scarcity-driven mindset, right? And I completely agree. And now you talk a lot about the importance of having an abundance mindset as a person and now an investor. So I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit for us. The answer to that is who wants to live in a world where it's a zero-sum game? Mm -hmm. For real. I don't get it. I was born an optimist. I came into this world glass half full perspective. I'm very lucky for that. But I think a lot of that centers, comes from a practice of gratitude. Okay. I might've been born an optimist, but then it was refined over time. As I did really realize my privilege, I was thrown into many situations where I was extremely privileged and that has helped me be who I am today. And I can't deny that. But I think we have enough evidence now that when the heart left leadership, which is an event that Brene Brown talks about in Dare to Lead, the heart was in leadership. And when the heart left leadership, it left capitalism. And over the past, let's say four decades, we've really seen the effects of that. And now we're just living the worst of it. And what that meant was that it was every man for themselves race to the bottom, really dog-eat-dog kind of world. And the fact that everybody thought the pie was finite, so why would they ever give anything to anybody else? When in reality, an abundance mindset essentially just means that you don't believe the pie is finite. Like I don't think I'm losing when I invest in a women's health e-commerce company in East Africa, when I'm giving my money to that company. I think they're winning, I'm winning, and the employees are winning, the customers are winning, the government of Rwanda is winning and having that company be a possibility and the life force in their country. And it actually brings me to a paradigm of capitalism that I really hope to see proliferate, which is stakeholder capitalism, not just shareholder primacy. And that was kind of like the biggest schism in my thinking around capitalism. It seems so weird to me that everything had to be about the shareholder and that I was literally being taught that if I had the money, I had the power. That was it. Wealth is so much more than money. And why that really matters is then we create inclusivity right away. It's not, I have money and I need to correct a system so that everybody can be on the same level. It's, I have money, but I think about wealth as ideas, relationships, voice, and time, talent, social media presence, skills. And so in doing so, I think that it is required to have an abundance mindset because you need to value more than just what you hold, you know, I guess your closest asset. And money is really important. It brings ease and ease into our lives. It brings the ability to have access to healthcare. It brings the ability to have a nice dinner and pay for things for your children and schools and things like that. But the reason I think the abundance mindset is so critical is because if investors were to shift to that mindset, things would look really different. And it's essentially what we need when we're transitioning to an economy where social and environmental returns or risks are valued 
in the same way that financial risks are evaluated by investors. So what do you think are some of the mistakes that, I mean, you talked about a few, but that some of the existing investors are doing now? So just to kind of unpack a little bit about the scarcity mindset for anyone who might not be familiar with how it's being done with non-impact investors. Well, I mean, I think the GameStop fiasco is a great example of that. I think some people would on the surface think that that's about democratizing finance, when in reality, it's about using shame to trick hedge fund managers into not doing what they're doing. And actually in a short squeeze, because that's what happened, a group of micro investors tried to short squeeze a hedge fund manager using Reddit groups and social media to coordinate that short squeeze. But what happens is if you don't know how that short squeeze works, the reason it's called a squeeze is because at the end, there are people who are left you know, losing out that were mm. a part of that movement. And so I think rather than attack, investors should look at opportunities. We are living in a time where there's tremendous innovation around climate, sustainable fashion, responsible consumption and production of like materials, for example. As you know, Yasmin, I have a podcast as well where I interview purpose-driven leaders, CEOs of companies. And we had recently in season two, we had Temper Pack, an alternative packaging company, a CEO on the show. And I think just thinking about the opportunity rather than the fact that it's hard or it's hard to measure social and environmental return would really help investors that are not thinking of themselves as impact investors. But the one main argument is risk. Climate will continue to be a risk. If you're ignoring that, you're not thinking about the whole picture. And I'm not sure I would personally invest in you because I don't think you're doing your due diligence right. I think almost in every industry, climate will be a risk factor. And so to flip that coin, I think that might start to turn on some of the brains of like the diehard capitalists. And I have some of them as investors in my fund that because they look at my market as unbanked people and they say, dollar signs, opportunity, this is awesome. So I think there is a way to speak to somebody who might be more, I would say, traditional in their view of capitalism, where it is like, I win, you lose. And there is a pathway to shift that mindset as well, because the more that that investor sees either risk factors or sees that their investment is not playing out the way they thought it would vis-a-vis employees or union litigation and you know labor contention, to just name one example, I think that they'll start to understand that there's a better way to do things. Absolutely. I mean, and we talked about this when we met, but you've now had, I believe you're on your second fund, raising your third fund with Beyond Capital, and you guys have done incredibly well. So it shows your money can do great things and still bring in returns, which I know is a lot of the themes in your book that you recently wrote, right? The good your money can do. So I'd love to hear what inspired you to write a book. I know writing a book is not an easy feat at all, especially as someone who travels quite a bit and is so busy like you. What was inspiration for you to get your ideas into this book that you recently launched? Yeah. And just for the record, it's the second fund that we're raising now. The SEC, I have to be kind of very, very clear about it because of the SEC regulations. But the book was a passion project. I'll never forget the aha moment that I had that kind of set me on the course to even think about speaking to a wider audience about impact investing in that way. And it was in 2012. I was sitting in the 
investment office of an advisor of mine, investment advisor, actually had just moved from Switzerland to Los Angeles because my husband was working as the general counsel of a Swiss business. And I had a very traditional asset manager and we had Philip Morris in our portfolio. And I said, I want this out of the portfolio. And it's not in line with my values. I don't see why we can't achieve this return with another bond because it was a debt investment. And I couldn't help but just notice that everything I said about that, the multiple requests that I made fell on dead ears. And the aha moment wasn't that I was so angry because I was very angry. And I think that sadly there was some gender bias and we've never had another male asset manager, client advisor, maybe asset manager, but not client advisor, not direct interface with our portfolio. It's always been a female ever since. And that made me really upset. But actually the aha moment was centered around realizing that that manager, who was actually very senior, lacked the tools to know what the alternative would be for me. And it made me realize that while I was doing my work, I was actively investing in companies that were improving lives, quite frankly, and driving value creation and innovation in the areas that I mentioned previously. I was kind of just like the lady at the dinner tables that like did that and everybody else, you know, made their money and then wrote philanthropic checks and called it a day. And it really got me thinking about, well, if this is so possible, because it was also happening at the time that you could have a bond fund or you could have an equity fund that maybe was screened out for tobacco, firearms, and alcohol and other sin industries. But nobody really knew about them. And especially the advisor community didn't know about them. And so as we say in Texas, which is where I currently live, I had some grace. It gave some grace to my client advisor, but I thought of it as an opportunity to speak to a wider audience. And so when I kind of, I wasn't living, I think I was living in Los Angeles at the time. So when I actually went back and, you know, had my work week, I really brainstormed ways to communicate our work more widely. It's a creative team. We started putting out more images of our work, different types of language. We didn't communicate as like a traditional nonprofit. We really tried to describe the benefit that our work was bringing to the individuals that were buying the products and services that the companies we were investing in were creating, but also what our donors and our investors, because we previously were set up as a nonprofit, were getting out of being involved with our work. And that funneled up to a book called The Good Your Money Can Do, which is a guidebook for anybody that wants to use their resources to align with their values. And I say resources in the true sense of believing that wealth is more than money. It is centered around money because I actually think it's an easy place to start. And it's also the language that I kind of speak as an investor, but it also discusses consumer choices, active citizenry, building a community around you to support this type of work. And it's meant to be kind of dog-eared and written on and highlighted for the reader to really feel inspired and have agency to go out to find their own values and then line up their life with their values, which feels really good because that's how I live my life. 
Absolutely. And I'm excited that you're bringing more awareness to the space because I think there's a lot that all of us can learn about when it comes to impact investing, even in our own lives and just how we think about what brands we want to associate with and how, you know, even the little things that we do from a day to day perspective. So I think your book is very digestible in the way it's written. So congratulations for putting it together and getting it out. I know it's not an easy feat at all. So I'm excited for our listeners to learn more about it. And we'll definitely be sure to put it in the show notes. And I want to shift gears a little bit and talk more about raising money as a whole. So clearly I know, you know, as an impact investor, you're trying to create positive change with your money. I think there's so many takeaways that people listening right now who are looking to raise money for their business can learn from you. So as someone who sees hundreds of decks meets with so many entrepreneurs, what do you think are some of the key things that stand out in a presentation or a deck that gets you excited about investing your money in their business? Yeah. Well, I don't invest in trends. I invest in people. And if I know that a person is thinking about, as I mentioned, all the stakeholders, that gets me really excited because that enables the next version of capitalism that will be more inclusive. And it inculcates it from the start. The market could change, but the people are the same. And so that's number one is really, I don't want to say changing your stripes. You know, If you are very centered on one particular way of doing things, entrepreneurs are capable of starting whatever business that they want. But that really, really, really gets me excited. The other areas I think are more technical in that, you know, I think you could, we've all heard a pitch from somebody at a dinner party of, you know, an incredible entrepreneur that's solving a really, really big problem. But if you look under the hood of that company, sometimes it's not sustainable. And so making sure that a business is sustainable, I think is really important, particularly if it purports to have a social mission. Clubhouse is one of these companies because they don't have a revenue model, but they do purport to have a social mission. And I I worry that businesses like that will distort the market and make it harder for true founders or entrepreneurs that are bringing in impact and baking it into their models. They will make it harder for them to raise money because, you know, let's say Clubhouse doesn't work out, who knows? I think ultimately it doesn't speak well for a business that is trying to do something bolder and bigger. And so making sure that you don't fall into what I call the mission trap is I think also really important. And as a founder, communicating sustainability, unit economic profitability, adding up the profitability of your model and making sure that it makes sense as you grow and scale. I don't believe in the spray and pray investment model, which is the Silicon Valley model of 10 companies and have a hundred X and then a bunch of mediocre returns and losses. I think that then we're basically just playing roulette with our money. And then it doesn't matter who you back. It doesn't matter if you back a female or a person of color as a founder, because you don't really care if they fail or not. You're looking for one out of 10. So that's another piece that I think there's a niche maybe for some entrepreneurs out there that are listening to kind of fill in the middle where there are some investors that are looking for what's called not venture capital, but builder's capital, kind of more centered around a business that may not be 100x, but certainly will be a good return and build a business that's long lasting and not just centered around 
a trend or a particular buzz in the industry. I'm so glad you're bringing that up. And I actually have never heard of the phrase spray and pray that <laughs> that made me laugh and definitely makes sense in their investment strategy. But one thing that really stands out that you said was investing in companies that are more sustainable. So people who are looking to raise money, I think they sometimes think that venture capital is really the only route, right? When they're obviously a big focus on growth and not necessarily always sustainable long-term businesses because their strategy is different, right? They're looking to sell quickly. They're looking for high growth. You know, what would you say are some of the things that make a company sustainable for people who are looking to build a company in that way? It's all about the market. I mean, this is just my opinion, but we've come to a place in the American market where there's a greater need to invest than there are, I would call, sustainable investment ideas. Now that's changing. I think climate tech is an area that I would be really excited about if I were like a US VC. Mobility tech as well are areas where I think there's a lot of room for sustainability and long-term growth. But for some reason, that little section of the Bay Area likes to fund things that they think are going to balloon or crazy founders that they think are going to become big. And so I think that my view of being a basic goods and services investor was tested as well during COVID when things that were viewed as basic goods and services or even gig economy workers, they were all redefined as essential. So we got to see what became essential and what was not essential. And I think the focus on essentials will continue to have its own needs and this essentials will always need to evolve. We've seen them all need to evolve during COVID and we're not sure how long they're going to have to operate wearing masks or social distancing or indoor, outdoor and all of those things, or even just with greater levels of delivery if you're thinking about kind of groceries and consumer goods. And so I think the key to really the sustainability piece is centering your business model around it. If you are a need to have then you probably have a higher likelihood of attracting capital that is not venture capital. Maybe it's family offices that have a long-term time horizon. Maybe it is impact investors that understanding that they need an exit are willing to think about an alternative structure or are not pushing for 100x necessarily. Although you know, no investor would turn that down. But I think that there's an intention behind their investing that is a little bit more realistic. So I think it does come down to industry and creating products and services that are needed and you know meeting your market where it is which makes a lot of sense to me that's why i think i have a hard time wrapping my head around companies like wework and clubhouse that get very large valuations extremely fast with not very much on paper and you talked about how with beyond capital and the way you invest people is number 1 or very core to how you evaluate investment opportunities. So what are some of the traits that you see in the founders that you meet who you end up investing in that get you excited or have really built really exciting mission-driven companies? There's a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And it's a great book because those 15 commitments are really the qualities that I think leaders that I would like to invest in exhibit. And distilling it down to one sentence, essentially, it's leaders that are acting from above the line and not below the line, which you could say is scarcity and abundance on either side of that line. I think that that's just really critical. I mean, again, I got to experience what below the line was firsthand. It was profit at no cost. It was make money off of the backs of innocent people. And it was 
not caring about diversity and inclusion at all. And so I do think that the qualities come down to taking responsibility, being accountable, being honest, but I would say in a non-confrontational way, being direct and being clear as a leader with your team so that everything is clear, but making sure that you're not alienating in the process. So I encourage maybe everybody to take a look at the book because it is a good playbook. There are a lot of anecdotes. And I think that the 15 commitments are also on the website of the 15 commitments of conscious leaders as well. I'm excited. I definitely want to look into that myself. And a topic that I want to make sure we talk about in this interview also is the topic of self-care. You know, you are a mother of two adorable children and you have your husband, you have a podcast, you have a fund, you're actively raising right now. There's so much that's on your plate. How do you manage your own self-care and mental health when you have so much going on in your life? Well, I mentioned I'm an only child. So I think I'm used to being the only one, like prioritizing myself. So I think part of it is I just don't feel bad or guilty Mm. about taking care of myself because I know what is needed. I've kind of inculcated that so deeply into who I am that I also see the value of doing so. So I think I show up better when I'm not tired. I think I show up better when I feel good about myself and I'm taking care of my skin or whatever it is, taking my vitamins and making sure that my health is at the top level. And I also perform better as a general partner and as as a CEO, as you rightly point out, with a lot of things going on. But part of self-care is also loving what you do. And I'm really lucky. I don't have to sit on random conference calls. I have friends that work in the corporate world and most of their days on calls that they don't really have to be on and they have to say one thing. And I'm really lucky that I kind of am able to select the work that I do. It's extensive Mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that. I like to work hard. I'm very process driven, but I do have an element of gratitude. And that is the last point for me. It's gratitude. I think when you feel grateful for your life, time is different. You don't feel heavy. You don't feel weighted by the work that you're doing, even if it's on yourself. You feel it's a joy and it's Mm -hmm. a blessing to be able to take the bath or use the body oil. I think I just grew up being able to prioritize myself. And as a mother, I will not buy into toxic mother culture. Not interested in it. I had my first child in Los Angeles where it is a thing. And what is toxic mother share more <laughs> guilting shaming if you're working you're a bad mom i saw my mom go through that personally and it was not pretty to watch and i knew that it was wrong even when i was a young girl but yeah guilting and shaming and feeling bad about yourself for no reason and i'm lucky i mean again i think i've said i'm lucky many times in this interview but i get to work with an executive coach and i'll never forget i was Heading off on a nine-day trip because once a year I have to leave for nine days because where I invest is very far away. And I texted her, this is obviously pre-COVID, and I said, I'm so worried, I'm so sad, I'm going to miss my kids. And she gave me three or four tips as to how to think differently about it. And I think that is everything. We could think that we're tired or we can think that we just need that little extra sleep later on and we'll be okay. We can think that we're horrible moms or we can think that we're great moms and 
our children are being raised maybe by other caretakers that are providing other things to their lives, which is the situation that I'm in. And I'm very comfortable with that. So I think having a resource to be a sounding board is almost more important than getting a facial. And so I think that that's really the core of my self-care is meditation and what Coach Karen Eldad would call staying in the spiritual gym. So being able to be in a place where I am not acting from below the line, always in my parenting, in my relationship with myself, because negative self-talk, I'm a slight perfectionist. So negative self-talk occasionally hops in there. But being in a place where I know that I can be kinder to everyone and be more realistic is really centered around the self-care aspect and being in the spiritual gym. I love that. And I think also having the right people around you who support you in whether the way you're mothering, even though that might be different, you know, depending on who you talk to, and even the way you are running your business, which is also very different. So I think when you are doing something that is outside of the norm, who you surround yourself with is so, so key. Would you agree? For sure. I also am so perplexed as to why women don't talk about the support behind the scenes more, because I think that there's shame in our culture around having support. And I'm the first one to tell you that if I didn't have three full-time people at home, I would have not raised my venture fund. My whole team knows that. My husband knows that. We are entirely on the same page and we are very, very grateful and lucky. And you interviewed Dinah Trout as well. And she was on my podcast, but I loved how she opened up about having somebody cook her meals Mm -hmm. and creating the space to be a mom. But yes, I think the high vibe tribe, which also extends to your friends, it extends to your colleagues, is really important as well in that whole equation. Because if you're dealing with somebody who might not be meeting that kind of energy level, I think it can be very draining. Mm -hmm. And it is important to make sure that you are aligned with your friends and your colleagues and even the person that you work for in the energy where you want to be so that your whole life feels good. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up the help aspect because, Mm -hmm. you know, like you mentioned with Dana and a lot of the other women on my podcast, including yourself, you look at them and you think, wow, they have it all, right? They have a beautiful family. They have so many kids, their business is growing. They're starting another business, but at the end of the day, they're not doing it by themselves. They have a whole team around them. They have help. So it's not about comparing your life to them, but really understanding, you know, what does it take behind the scenes to manage all that is going on. So I appreciate you being transparent. And I know when we met, I was picking your brains because at some point I do want kids, but I also have so many other projects that I want to do along the side of that. So it's thinking about how do we set up our life where we can support all the projects and still be an involved mother. So I appreciate you just being very open and vulnerable about what goes on behind the scenes. So yeah, and not everybody's going to have three full-time people, but there are other great options. The school where my daughter goes to school has a full-day program year-round. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. We travel too much because we have lives in in different cities to, to take advantage of that. But I think in general, it's really about what works for the family. But thinking beyond the paradigm of, again, this comes back to wealth is more than money. It's not just about what you earn work should feel good. It should feel fun. And if you have to spend a little bit more, it is not just about you earn this, your spouse earns the other amount and that's more than you. So you can't work. That's a zero sum game. And that's the scarcity mindset. 
And I think that that's gotten us into a lot of trouble in 2020. And again, I actually think it's kind of falls into the toxic culture that I just, I'm not interested in being a part of. And that's why I try to be, this is a part of using my voice and try to be a little bit more of an advocate for things can be different. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me, Shilpa Shah, the founder of Kriana came on our podcast and she was saying, you know, she was a breadwinner when her husband was in med school and residency. And then when he got his job, she wanted to really go all in. I believe she had two kids at the time too with Kriana. So she wasn't making money. And she was talking about when the business was making a little bit of money, the best investment she did was hiring help, right? So at the time when she probably needed that money, she took the risk of using that to get help to really accelerate her career because she needed that. So she talks a lot about that as well, which I know you mentioned too. But one thing I also want to talk about before we close a podcast, you talked about how you are a bit of a perfectionist and it's something that you have been trying to work on your entire life. What are some of the things that have worked on you? Because you know it's something that I deal with all the time and I try to remove myself from trying to be perfect in everything. And I think a lot of overachievers can resonate, but what are some of the things that have helped you kind of battle perfectionism in your life? I have been very lucky to have a really good team. And I acknowledge the fact that I work in an industry that a lot of people want to work in. And so I've been able to work with incredible people throughout the past 12 years to be a part of our investment decisions. Early on, my husband was a co-founder of our first fund. We looked at each other and thought very quickly, very soon in, we're not going to be able to make these decisions on our own. We need to talk about a lot of businesses before we decide where to invest. We need to gain market knowledge. And so it actually taught me to delegate. And it wasn't delegating things that I'm not good at. I do that too. You know, I don't necessarily like doing my taxes. So somebody else does that. But it was actually just allowing for a diversity of opinions in my process. So over the years, we've had all sorts of people be a part of our investment process. We actually had a rotating fellow program. And then of course, we've had full-time team members. And one of them needs a major shout out. Her name is Matilde and she's awesome. And I say everybody needs a Matilde. But I think when you allow for a greater number of voices in whatever structure works for you, it does create a situation in which you realize that you don't need to do it all. That you know there are other people out there that can help leverage your idea or realize your idea or bring their own ideas to the table that will be complementary to yours. And so I think that the way I work has really helped me drop some of the perfectionism. And then on the personal side, I think there are a lot of innovations. And if one thing gets me up in the morning, it's innovation. If you were to (laughs) tell me, I actually give a real life example I have a few subscription boxes for my children's clothing. It's on autopilot. I don't have to think about it. The school clothes and then the nicer clothes. There are now two companies that do that. But when one of them created an upcycling program, I think I just jumped up and down for about five minutes because I thought it was the coolest integration of all my values and of myself. So I do try to use some hacks to needing to do it all myself. And finally, going back to the spiritual gym... I think that being authentic and being vulnerable is the way to truly build relationships. It took me a couple years to really truly understand that, but I am who I am and I'm not perfect. I don't think anybody's perfect and I'm 100% comfortable with that. 
So I think that it takes time, but it is very liberating to not have to do it yourself or feel like you have to kind of be a certain way. The last thing I'll say is that I did have help writing my book. And I'll tell you that because I had a friend who said to me, oh my gosh, why would you do that? I thought we all had to do it all on our own. And I said, absolutely not. These are my ideas, but I'm a mathematician. I'm not a writer. So I'm going to have a professional writer help me write the book. And I'd say the book was probably 60% written by me in the end with the editing process. But without the person that helped me write it, this thing would not be published and it wouldn't be in the hands of the readers. So I'm really grateful for being able to own that and have relationships like that that help me realize my ideas. Yeah. And I appreciate you, you know, even with perfectionists, it's tough for them to even delegate anything to others, right? Because I think they can do it the right way. So you've clearly have shifted away from that and have delegated and gone help. And it can even be the smallest things in your life, whether it's your spouse helping do the dishes in some way or help you with something, you know, just even allowing them to jump in, even if it's not perfect, I think is still a step in that. My husband is a 50-50 partner, hands down. And in my book, I wrote in the acknowledgement, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to open it up and I'm going to- Who man's amazing. Her husband is uh, another amazing human being. I'm going to read it to you because it's a very short, short little point in the acknowledgements. I am most grateful to my husband and Beyond Capital co-founder, Human Yazari, who has supported me in every area of my life since the day we met in 2008. Equality has been at the core of our relationship since the start. It represents our values as a couple and family, providing the foundation on which we view our impact. How can we be impact investors without equal relationships? That's really the most important point here. So when you said my husband jumping in and doing dishes, it really made me think about setting a foundation for the world that I want to see. I can't solve all the problems. We all need to do it together. So why not enlist help to do that? That's beautiful, Eva. Well, I'm so glad you're able to join us today. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story. It was such a joy to have you on today. Thank you. It was really an honor to speak with you. And I know that we're going to grow into long-term friends. So I'm looking forward to that. And thank you to everybody who listened as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.